Today we have a guest, Mr. Jay Zhao. He's a founder, founding partner of Leonis Capital and, and an ex-partner of T-Fund. Very quickly before we actually dive into today's event is some housekeeping matter. So Asia CEO community has this really unique setup in a, in a way where we allow people to connect with each other through the chat box. So we're, we didn't set up the event as a webinar which means everyone is practically online and you can see each other. So for those uh, of you who are not asking questions or I would kindly ask you to mute yourself. Uh, if you do have a question, I, my preference would be for you to uh, paste it into the chat box and I'll try my best to address that. Uh, if I do miss it, let me know, raise your hand through the Zoom function where you can actually raise your hand. Let me know about that. And the final housekeeping, it's also in a way, Gary was supposed to host the meeting, but unfortunately, Gary has a family emergency. He is in the call, so we're very glad that he can still dial in, but he's fine. So I just want to let that I will be hosting the call. And so there might be difficulty for me going through the chat box as promptly as I would like to be. So with that backdrop, I want to kind of like kick into our event today. So again, it's a talk to VC series. So it's about talking to venture capitalists. And why do, why do we wanted to launch it this year? This is in consideration of a lot of feedback from our members. Since the event that I last hosted, there were a lot of questions about venture capital, about investing into startup. And so we thought it might be a good time for this year to actually kickstart a series about venture capital, about startup. And that's the reason why we're having this first episode today. And this first episode, we have Jay, and who has a very interesting background. And in, I kind of wanted to jump in a little bit into that before I give Jay the chance to introduce about himself. It's, he has a background in enterprise technology startup. So enterprise technology somehow has been like the hottest sector for a lot of investors right now. And it seems like a lot of the enterprise tech we're also able to navigate COVID-19 much better than a lot of consumer tech. And I think this cannot be a better time to jump into this topic and this sector to really explore a little bit. We will also go into a more general information about how does Jay make in his investment, which I think uh, are a lot of participants will be interested to hear on. Yep. So Jay, can you just kind of like give mm -hmm. us your background, how did you get into venture capital? I think mm. for the purpose of our participants, a lot of them come from startup companies, a lot of them come from bigger companies, but I think every one of them would be interested to know venture capital seems to be a, a small uh, industry and a lot of people kind of like want to know more about it. There seems to be some secrecy around. So I really wanted mm. to know how did you get into this sector? Yeah, well, thanks so much, uh, Wendy, for having me. And, and I, I, I can definitely feel this is community type of event and the dynamic, which is great. Uh, it's very intimate. So definitely feel free to ask any questions, either through chat box or whatnot. So we'll kind of go through uh, some of the things that you care about. So at least, so to answer uh, some of the Wendy's uh, question. So my background, I right now I'm managing a fund called uh, Leonis Capital. So we're an AI focused fund. We invest in what we call the automation economy. So companies that we see as AI first company, 
mostly in enterprise side, and also some of them have application on the consumer side. We definitely would love to be a capital partner to those companies, either they're in the U.S. or in you know, in China. And the other kind of side note about me, so I have the fortune to be in venture and do investing over the past like ten plus years in both uh, countries, the U.S. and China. Before Leonis Capital, I was managing a fund called T Fund, which was a CVC fund that's backed by TCL Corporation. So we have a mandate to back deep tech companies, AI companies, and really trying to marry the the best of both sides, the corporate resource plus do independent venture investing. And before that, I was、uh, doing early stage investment at two of the most kind of well established funds in in the valley, and some of the companies that we have backed. Are all the way back to like 1990s Cibo System, and to more recent Marketa Enaplan. One is a public company,、uh, and one is soon to be a public company. More on the consumer side, probably people know more about companies like、uh, Pandora and Airbnb. Also, we're fortunate enough to be investor in those companies as well. So I'm sure we'll talk more about those cases, and、uh, that's a little background about myself. Yeah, thank you for that. That was very informative.、Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of those that you have described, I would definitely want to jump into that and delve deeper. But you talk about the companies that you have invested in, you know, the comprises of AI background,、mm-hmm. data kind of like big data kind of companies. I kind of wanted to bring up this slide.、Mm-hmm. Well, which is the companies that you have、uh, partnered with? So, so I kind of wanted to point to this particular slide. This is a list of companies that you have partnered with, and they include the companies that you have exited, and include the company that have became a unicorn and still maintain, still are a unicorn. So, I think in particular, I kind of wanted to dwell into that. Like, how、mm-hmm. did you identify those companies, and and what did you do when you're partnering with them? And I think. Yeah. That would help us understand more about your background.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, happy to talk more about it. So first of all,、um, you know, I think about investment companies. At least for me, I really think about being a partner to to entrepreneurs, and because at the end of the day, you're not as early stage investor. You really not just writing a check, but you really have to build a bonding、uh, with companies and、uh, with founders at early stage. So we typically refer to companies that we partner with. Rather than the company that we invest, and from the list of these companies, some of them I I serve on the board of those companies. Some of them I source the deal, and some of them we kind of I, I kind of go through the whole thing from、uh, meeting the entrepreneur from day one to all the way serve on the board. And to give some context, so one of the company is one of the higher performing company that's really hot right now. It's called Marketa. So Marketa is the API provider for what we call the on-demand economy. So a lot of apps that we're seeing today that's been pretty、uh, successful, like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and、uh, Instacart, you know, all those on-demand economy companies at the back end, you still have to do transaction, you should still have to do、uh, expense management. So one of the problem that they had at the time is to look for a good tech vendor to help provide that robust back end, so that when you have Your dasher come to the store pick up food. You can actually do a proper accounting to that. And also, at the early days, right at DoorDash, they actually don't have this robust integration with vendors. So they actually have to give out like a card, a debit card, and a credit card for the delivery person. And at that time, there was fraud. There was a good amount of fraud going on, just for the simple reason people can take advantage and they will. But now with Makata, you can automate. 
the different data points, such as your uh, geolocation and order time data, and, and then also the data from the dasher, integrate that all together so that, you, so that the credit card will only unlock when the dasher approach closer to the vendor. So all of that is powered by software and all of that is automated. And of course, because of COVID, we've seen a lot more volume um, you know, through the on-demand economy companies and also through e-commerce companies. And that uh, kind of give a lot of the push and intel win for companies like Makata. We're early stage investor in that company. And frankly, if you, it's all public information. If you do, do some research, it's a very interesting story around Makata because initially that's not the idea. They're not thinking about being the stripe for mm-hmm. uh, on-demand economy. They're not thinking about doing the API uh, company at all. They're thinking about like doing the reward program, right? Something simple, like going to mom and pop restaurant and sell the reward card. That didn't work out that well. The market demand was not there and it was a really hard sell. And so this company actually went through the up and down like multiple times until they hit the sweet spot. So this is just another kind of interesting story to talk about the resilience of, of, of entrepreneurship and that and investing in that company that early. Resilience is definitely a topic that we will get into because I think it's so yeah. relevant now in these days. But I think what is interesting is you talk about they went through up and down. Mm. My question would then be because this is what a lot of startups are experiencing or would, would have to go through naturally. It's how mm. it's when do you decide to pivot? Mm. What's the right time? Is it just like a gut feel and you, you have that because you have been an entrepreneur and you just kind of know about it? Or are you really waiting for feedback from customers to decide that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, when to stick it out and when to pivot, that's always a very <laughs> interesting question. It's more of a question, I would say, uh, art than science. Sometimes data can be tricky, right? You, uh, Frankly, if you are sophisticated enough, you can just like slice the data any way that you want to, to make the case any however way that you like it. So the way that I would say when we talk to our founders, uh, our CEOs, is that how closely you are staying to the customers. And that's, frankly, we talk about the how does a VC do due diligence at uh, this early stage. We are with the, with, the, with the unknowns, right? Just like our early stage founders. So a lot of ways that we're trying to understand uh, the problem is to understand the market. So if anybody's interested, uh, when he knows this, I actually have a blog post just about how does we see due, due diligence for early stage companies. So a lot of, a lot of things, it's, it's not like there is a checklist, you just fill it out and then boom, at the end, you number crunch and question answers. A lot of time mm-hmm. is that we ask multiple questions to get an idea whether that founder knows his or her market well enough or not. And does that person have some unique and deep insight that not many people know about? And that's why I say it's more than art than science. But having said that, there are a good amount of data points that you can ping to. For example, in Makata's case, right, it's clear that the reward card program and the market is not there. You can look at the data like in terms of the sales cycle, in terms of the value being generated, and the founders agree too. So if in that case, both the investor and founder feel like, well, that's not attractive market, then maybe we should do something else. And they did. So there was multiple cases like that, right? How Slack was founded and started. Before Slack, they were just a gaming company. Obviously, the idea didn't work out and they pivoted into a new direction and it just took off. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's not the typical case in all cases. 
But uh, a lot of times when VCs say that you invest in a founder, to a, a lot of degree, you do invest in founders' the ability to learn and to iterate and to navigate this kind of the evolving and emerging market dynamic as they go. The, the, the good thing is that you want to invest in in company, in management team that can change and can adopt fast rather than management team that's just react too slow or being stubborn stubborn for the sake of being stubborn, right? That's that's not the type of company that you want to get behind. Yeah, that's a really good explanation. That reminds me of the quote. I think there was one philosopher that said that only change is permanent. Everything else Mm -hmm. is kind of like temporary in a way. So so when you talk about change, I think that is so relevant uh, for a lot Mm -hmm. of the startups. And I know your background also span across the United States, China and Israel. And we have questions from the the participants asking about Southeast Asia. And Mm -hmm. I actually do not know about your experience on Southeast Asia or about your viewpoint, but I think I I would be interested Mm -hmm. to hear about it. The the question is really about what's your view about Southeast Asia and, mm-hmm. and the, the audience was quoting that this TikTok has set up R&D center in Singapore. And, and it seems like the startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia is emerging. So what, what are your views on Southeast Asia? Yeah, so from investors' point of view, I will fund company anywhere as long as there are great companies, great founders. Uh, so boundaries so is not a problem for you. Yeah, that's right. So the, the border is never a problem. I'm not expert in, in Southeast Asia, the ecosystem. I've heard great things about it. I have my GP friend who actually, they, they will do investment in the Valley and then they go back to Southeast Asia and they start Southeast Asia only fund. And it seems like some of the few characteristics make sense, right? The valuation is cheaper, lower than, than Silicon Valley and certainly than China. And the potential for future growth is very exciting. So I think that thesis makes a lot of sense. So, but again, like I'll fund anybody, no matter where they are, as long as a great, great company and great entrepreneurs. So, so which means Southeast Asia would still have a lot of chance if the, if they say, if they're an enterprise tech company where their technology can be provided to customers globally, would that be mm. kind of like a, a right analogy? Yeah, I, I think I think so. I, I think the the beauty uh, of SaaS, right, of enterprise tech, or even just consumer tech, it's it's just really about the beauty of internet is that as long as you build a uh, useful product and people start use it, it doesn't really matter which country that your uh, your headquarters is based. Let's say if your company in Singapore, company in Southeast Asia, then um, sure, like you, if you can build a useful product for Western market, then it should be able to scale. Now, most of the challenge for this cross-border expansion is to really come down to the founder. So a lot of times the founder doesn't have overseas education experience or work, work experience, then sometimes a lot harder to expand and beyond, right? But I think with for Southeast Asia, uh, a lot of thesis and a lot of exciting things I've heard about is that it's, a, it's an emerging and fast-growing market with a huge market potential. And in that case, you won't have any problem to see multiple unicorns coming from that market. And I think that's the, the underlying big thesis, a big bet for a lot of venture capital funds start investing and paying attention there. For me, we are a startup ourselves as well. So once we scale, we might set up office there as well. So one, I'm looking forward to that one day to come fairly soon, hopefully. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. When you talk about Marketa and enterprise tech, I, mm. I wanted to bring the participants to take a look at this particular news. It, it says 
right now, it goes back to my earlier statement that people seems to be people seems to be very interested in enterprise tech, and and if you look at this particular news from Bloomberg, everyone wants a piece of that, and mm. a total of thirty point four billion has been invested into enterprise technology companies, and that is a one third more than consumer technology companies, and so your background is in enterprise tech, and. And I, I wanted to tap a little bit more about what you see about enterprise tech right now, and mm. and and you did an amazing comparison, which I think I should bring back up for the uh, participants' information. I'm going to move myself a little bit so people can see my slide. Is so for the participants, this slide is prepared by Jay, and it's a really interesting one because it's a comparison between U.S. enterprise tech. And China enterprise tech, comparing them from one billion market cap to one trillion, and 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 where do we see the opportunities? And in uh, we've because we talk about Southeast Asia, I think this comparison could go beyond China as well, and it would apply to Southeast Asia as well, right? So so Jay, what's your view on that、yeah. when you are preparing this this information? Yeah, so just to kind of paint some color around it. So we did the internal analysis, which is if you look at the enterprise public enterprise companies in the U.S., which is fairly robust and fairly mature. In that you have different size of companies, public companies ranging from one billion to one trillion, and that includes many of the companies that you are aware of, like Salesforce, Intel, and Microsoft, all iconic companies、uh, in the U.S. And I think the U.S. being one of the oldest and, and most robust tech ecosystem, provide a really good example of what a mature enterprise ecosystem should look like. So now, if you look at China, and I think that kind of apply to many other ecosystem, you know, such as Southeast Asia、uh, as well. Certainly, is that if you map that out, certainly in China's case, we kind of max out、uh, above a hundred billion. And for the company that's below a hundred billion, that they tend to be older public companies. So what that means is that you actually have this kind of leapfrog potential opportunity for enterprise company to be leapfrogged into that dollar category, not next year, but certainly over the next one or two decades. And and to Wendy's point, enterprise is sexy to us because it's resilient by nature. If you look at the performance for enterprise companies against the public market and certainly against consumer companies, it doesn't have that kind of a huge up and down or public market's lower performance. It's quite consistent、uh, in that it just keeps generating generating good returns because enterprise customers、uh, they tend to spend a large dollar amount for the service that they need. And two, as the world is becoming more tech enabled and more digitalized. You're gonna see that enterprise tech is taking away more value from the traditional route, and also by automation features that we're seeing more and more happening right now. Got it. That's that's really interesting. When when because I had I was like kind of doing some research,、mm. and apparently this is like an, an enterprise tech list、uh, which was prepared by the website enterprisetech30.com. And this is the 2020 list, and they list out the early stage, mid stage, and late stage enterprise technology companies. And it appears a lot of them are based in the United States. Based on your comparison just now, do you see the in the next 10 years where there will be a lot more of these companies coming out from Asia 
Asia or China that goes into that three category, early stage, you know, mid stage or late stage? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that to be mindful about is the next generation of enterprise companies, the iconic one, the unicorns, they're not going to be the same form or same product shape like the U.S. counterpart. So one thing I think most people know, U.S. investors certainly have tried to invest in China's version of Salesforce or China's version of uh, Microsoft or whatever, right? Intel five, five to six years ago, and that did not work, right? And there was a lot of capital kind of pulling to the SaaS sector in China. I mean, in our view that uh, I get the argument for it, but our view that might not be the correct lens to look at it. So at Leonis Capital, one thing that we are super excited about and we encourage entrepreneurs to, to, to think more about this way is that try to think about how you can utilize the tech of AI similar to the infrastructure of mobile, similar to the infrastructure of cloud. Those are the two mega trends that push and generate multiple, multiple unicorns uh, uh, being created in, in, in your uh, ecosystem. So in this case, in, we're, we're analyzing US and China. So certainly in China, we're thinking about what's the next iconic company, enterprise company will look like. And our view at this point is that it's likely to be more AI driven, more automation driven than the traditional SaaS tool, traditional SaaS platform. Because the core of SaaS, the enterprise in enterprise sector, is about digitalization, is about being on the cloud. But that does not work, in, in our view, that does not work really well in China enterprise customers because you, you haven't generated enough value for those decision makers yet. So in enterprise uh, sales, right, you always want to establish a really clear ROI, meaning what can my tech product do for you in terms of generating revenue, top line, or cutting out costs. We feel pretty excited with the whole trend of, of automation, similar to how in Asia, we have a lot of leapfrogging in mobile and the mobile payment. I think something uh, like that might happen in the enterprise space. So to Wendy's point, right now you have top 30 list of enterprise company in the US, but I think given 10, 20 years, uh, it won't be surprising to see a similar list um, from Asia and from China as well. We have a question from the audience. And, and so this lady, she believes Marketa is a great company uh, and she worked in a horizontal function and was placing to start up for 12 to 18 months for venture capitalists to take the trailblazing ideas and bring in the lean operating structure. So her, her question is, do you, do you agree that founders' willingness to pivot it's a part of the gateway mentality required to reach that event horizon. So if we look at this, this list of companies that we have, we have put up here, how many of these companies have pivoted from their very original idea? And how many have been able to stick, to stick onto uh, their original idea and still be able to succeed? Yeah, that's a good question. So the examples like Slack is an extreme example, right? You pivot from a gaming company to a messaging app and then went public. So that's a really, really rare type of, type of pivot uh, that becomes successful. Now, many things that people don't talk about is that you kind of do that extreme pivot and then you fail, right? Many companies obviously follow that route. But what's mostly common in startup world is you do micro pivots. And you do micro pivot, you, and, and if you're a founder, you don't really think about it as a pivot per se. You think about it as evolution of the product. 
and the, the way that you can serve the customer better. So, so that's the mentality that we, uh, we look for. When backing founders, you have, they have to be able to learn and, and iterate really fast. Now, if it's, let me, let me think about, so with all these company on the list, I don't think any one of them have gone through like a major, major pivot. One of the company I might talk about, they did have a pivot, but it's not like a Slack style pivot. It's a company called Servios. So Servios, they are one of the leading, if not the number one VR game studio in the world. They have published really engaging, really high quality VR games. They have secured some really high profile IP around it as well. But when this company first started, it was by two of the founders who has unique insight about building the VR headset, very similar to Oculus. That was when Oculus was acquired, well, was founded and then quickly got acquired by Facebook. So other than Oculus, then there's another company called Servius. The, the technical uh, pedigree uh, of those founders are very impressive. And the insight for them in terms of how to build an ecosystem is very equally impressive as well. But the original idea, uh, original product is the hardware, is the headset for Oculus to build. And they did build that really expensive, really high-end stuff. Like as investor, we love it. We love to try on different demo, especially VR demo, right? Because you kind of have to show up in the office and then put it on and be amazed by the the zombie killing game, which I can still remember this day, which is crazy. That's just how immersive the, the VR experience was that they had built. But the problem is that the hardware, hardware was so expensive, you, it's hard to sell to the mainstream market. And as a VC, you don't really want to use your capital to fund hardware manufacturing and development that tend to be really intensive on the, on the fund usage side as well. So anyway, so long story short, the company feel like, well, if that's the case, what, what are we good at? We're good at making games, engaging games. And we have a lot of engineers on the gaming development side as well. So one thing that we can do is that that other companies, other OEMs to manufacture the hardware, and that's just focus on the high quality game that differentiate ourselves. And they did that. So they're doing fairly well. I think with their strategy, it makes sense because even if the number of VR users is not big, you still have a subset of uh, gamers who crave for high quality game. So, so that's why they can relatively demand premium uh, of their game than their competitors. So anyway, so that's the, the pivot that they have done. Yeah. So it's interesting because this is the first time I'm hearing the, the phrase micro pivot, which I yeah. think really perhaps describe more accurately about a lot of the startups because it's really hard to pivot completely like 180 degrees because that would be so different to what you have accumulated in terms of experience or in terms of the product features that you have already uh uh, prepare for. So I think micro pivot, uh, it, it sounds like the, the more appropriate strategy or more, more practical strategy to go for. Uh, this, this is an interesting question from the audience and I, I found it, I found yeah. it kind of like interesting. It says, so the person is asking how do, if the founder or the management team is capable to change and adapt, I feel like it's like, Hey, how do you, if you like somebody, <laughs> so, uh, yes. so it's, it's about, is, is that like your, you, you get that from your experience. And so it kind of like become like a, a gut feel, a sixth sense, or do you see different, or do you see certain uh, attributes in a founder yeah. that gives you that, that image? Yeah. So I should say this, the, the, the there's, you, you can evaluate based on two point, eight points. 
One is before you, before you make the investment, before you form that partnership with the founder, and after that, after you make the investment. So before you make the investment, you kind of don't know, right? Because um, sometimes you kind of just meet the founder for the first time. And if you have, if you're lucky, you have enough time to do due diligence and then kind of get to know that person. But that, that's why it's in, that's why a lot of VCs would like to fund founders that they have worked with in the past or founders that come through their referral network, either through the same school or the same type of founder community so they can do some, at least some high level idea whether that person achieved things and can face some startup challenges down the road. So that's kind of the best uh, a VC can do before the investment. And that kind of explain why VCs like to invest founders with, with within certain network. And, and that kind of, again, explain the, the diversity issue within VCs, but that's kind of like a whole separate, uh, separate topic. Now, after you make the investments, then you kind of, you, you form the partnership with the founder, then typically, you know, on our side, we are very engaged in a way. So we're not like texting them all the time, but they will text me all the time. Like this, I kind of make myself available because I want to. So you don't, one thing that we do is that we don't impose ourselves as investors. I think that's a really important difference with us compared with many other larger funds. We see ourselves more like the founder's capital partner, the founder's partner to build, build the company. So they will text me like in the middle of the night or sometime midnight when they have questions about how to prepare their board, uh, board meeting materials, talk about like what to do if they, when they lose one big customers. So you really have to kind of be at that front seat along with them to see how they face, how they react to stress and how they react to rejection. And to really see and hear the reasoning for a new plan, for the new pivot. And a lot of times as an investor, your role is not to kind of get into the operational role because if you do that, you might as well just fund yourself, right? So it's important for us to recognize our role is not operator, but our role is to really challenge and stress test some of the plan and some of the question or some of the idea the founders have. And one of the benefits that come with being in venture for a while is that you see a lot of people, you see a lot of problem, and you see a lot of strategy that work and, and the, the one that work and the one does not work. And then you can do a pattern recognition in a way, or at least you can stress test those assumptions and, and see how the founder respond to that. Some founders, they respond really well and they can be data-driven they can, and the, the best, the best one that we like is that you kind of combine your market research, your market insight by your conversation with customers and, and show us what you say you're going to do. And you kind of test it out for two weeks, four weeks, and you come back with data and say, see, this is what I told you. And uh, here's the only result. And I think there is more that we can do here if we just implement this strategy. And typically it's kind of like more like a partnership type of thing. That's the best kind. The, the danger is that the v, a VC could be completely hands off and just be completely supportive. And I don't think that's the best partner uh, that you want in building a company. Uh, just look at WeWork, right? Look at some other companies, fairly pro high profile, but it, it's just really unfortunate result uh, that happened uh, with the company building process. Yeah, I feel like uh, if I have to summarize it in one sentence, it's really about the founder reaching out to the investor regularly and as proactively as possible. Even for me as an investor, I would 
I will always welcome the founder reaching out anytime because it feels like the founder is engaging rather than working in his own home and thinking about ideas. I think communication, active communication and proactiveness really counts. And then demonstrate that the, the, the founder has that agility mindset and also that adaptability mindset as well. I, I see a lot of questions from the audience and a lot of them evolve around how do you look at the how do you review companies? How do you look at tractions at a company? And this kind of like brings us to the one of the interesting article that you have written on your uh, website. And if you can type your website on the chat box for the audience oh, yes. so they can mm -hmm. have a chance to go and read them out when they have the time, I think that would be yes. awesome. So one of the article that you talk about is uh, how do we see conduct due diligence? And you kind of yes. focus on how big is the market. But before we get into that, is I mm -hmm. wanted to look into some of the questions that the participants have and has asked. Is mm -hmm. one of them is how much traction do you look for in an early stage startup companies? Because I think that's part of your due diligence as well. What are the traction? And when we talk about early stage, it sounds too broad. And if I can break it down into pre-seed stage, seed stage and series A, right? This mm -hmm. is typically the cycle where founders would fundraise. They raise it before seed stage and then they go into seed stage and then they go into series A. I guess if you mm. can break it down into the three phases and what are the traction you would hope to see in those three yeah. phases? That's a good question. It's very uh, practical if you're a founder and, and thinking about the journey as well. So typically, we think about a startup journey in a few stages, right? So you have a pre-seed that's typically, or you can call it angel, angel round or angel stage. And what that means is that the company doesn't have anything tend to have a team, at least the founder or co-founder, and you have an idea, or at best you have a prototype of, of something to prove that your idea can solve a problem. So at this stage, investors are typically angel investors, or your friends and family, or frankly, just your, you know, your own money to, to fund the initial effort. And the amount, it doesn't require it to be that big. Typically 50K, 100K, 100, 200K, something like that, USD. And in this stage, I would advise people to bootstrap as much as you can, because the earlier that, that you take home the outside capital, obviously the more expensive it is, right? Because you need to give, up, give out more equity to the outside investor, especially if you believe the company will be a big thing, then you just do the mental calculation. So selling 30% of your company for 20K or 50K might not be that worthwhile if you can kind of bootstrap it. Now, the second stage after pre-seed is what we typically call the seed stage. So seed stage from investor side, we typically, we by we, not, not meaning our fund, but just a seed investor in general, typically write 50, uh, 500K to up to $2 million into a company, depending on the founder's background and how much you have achieved and accomplished since you have the idea, right? So I would say normally we don't see a lot of traction on the revenue side. If you're doing an enterprise company or doing even doing consumer company, we focus more about the, the idea potential and, and, the, and the founder kind of, again, we talk about like the learning and engagement with the founder, right? So ideally you have to ask, hey, I have this, this, I have this idea last year, March, 
And right now, uh, it's been a year, but I only, I raised like 50K, but look what, how much progress that I have made. And not only that, there are more customers in the pipeline want to get into, get into the door of using my product, but I don't have the bandwidth to support that. So that's a really good signal uh, for us, or at least good things to hear uh, on the surface. So that, that would be kind of typical seed stage deal. Now, after seed, it's what we typically call the venture round, the series A round. Then you can think of it more like kind of going to college, right? That's series A round is your college. If you do well after you raise seed, ideally you should be able to have some traction on the, on the revenue side. So for enterprise company in, in the Valley and to a certain degree in China as well, VCs will look for revenue in the numbers close to 1 million AR. That's the, for some reason, that's a sweet spot. People want to think about if you are an enterprise company, get to 1 million AR, and then you, you can demand to raise roughly 5 to 10 million Series A round based on that traction. Now, if your revenue is slightly lower, that's okay, or higher, that's even better, but that's typical Series A attraction of VCs are looking for. Consumer company is a little bit different. In consumer, is, they don't follow a steady pattern because if you have a huge download, like huge uh, trend that you, you just happen to catch on, then sometimes you will have a really easy time to fund, fundraise because VC like to, by nature, chase shiny things, especially on the consumer side. There's good or bad, right? There's success stories like Facebook, how competitive Series A round was with Facebook, but also there is horror stories. There's a lot of many failed uh, consumer companies, even despite raising a lot of capital at Series A round as well. So anyway, so after you raise Series A, then Series B is really the scale. You can think of it like finally finished college, now you kind of get into the real world, right? So at Series B, that's a real money. You kind of, you, you, you typically get it uh, from large VC fund or growth stage fund where you raise roughly about 20 million to $30 million. So that's at a high level, how we think about the stage of companies. Yeah, when it's interesting you talk about Series B, there's in fact a question from the uh, participants about, you know, uh, Series B and C. And the question is, with the economical turmoil generated by COVID, do you see tighter capital from venture capital funds or toughest condition? Which strategy mm. do you recommend for Series B and C with market conditions like this? Mm. Well, it's a, it, it depends on what you do, right? So we obviously have seen many companies thrive and enjoy uh, taking the tailwind because of work from home, because of the situation in 2020 and in the need for digital product and uh, a SaaS product seems to be stronger last year and this year as well. So in terms of capital raising, surprisingly, not has not been slowed at all. On the other side, it's kind of being accelerated a little bit, except the, the Q2 last year when the U.S. stock market crashed and now bounced back and even kind of more up to the right. I think that's kind of reflecting on the VC market as well. All the friends that I know who've been doing venture investment, everybody is like, they didn't expect so many deals are getting done this year. So it's very counterintuitive. So I, I can't explain it, but I think the general trend is that people uh, on the LP side, people want to invest in technology because the kind of the long view, 10 years, you see the world will becoming more automated and more, more empowered by, by technology than the traditional side. But some, some categories are tougher, so without any doubt. So it's not like all the players will benefit. 
but that has been the case with or without COVID anyway. The winners tend to kind of take most of the resources as well as capital. And so that then has changed before or after 2020. Got it. You were breaking up a little bit, I think, in your last two sentences, if you can repeat that. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So I was just saying the dynamic of good companies takes most of the capital, most of the resource. That hasn't changed before 2020 or after 2020, right? That always been the dynamic. The, the company that in the top quartel, they tend to kind of withdraw, tend to attract most of the resources anyway. Yeah. I see there are still a lot more questions coming in. I will try to address as many as possible. And with the next question that we have, it's, I think we already talked a little bit about that, but it asks, what do investors look for in, apart from investment return? which I thought, mm. I think I think we do look for investment return. That's kind of like the ultimate goal, but I'll let you, uh-huh. I'll let you answer that. And, and how do we see build trust mm. and understanding of the high-risk environment? Like, I, I, it, I feel like to some mm. extent, this is part of our gene, right? We, we know that making investment to startup is high-risk and therefore we expect high return. And, and that's kind of correlated to investment return in a way. Yeah. What's your viewpoint on that? Absolutely. And frankly, that's the beauty of investing in early stage companies. Frankly, I love it. I think this is the best job in the world. You know the founder from day one. I mean, it's easy to invest when everything becomes clear and the founder has beautiful office and everything is set in place. But for me, I, I really love investing early. And I think part of it is outside of financial return. Personally, for me, is that is that feeling of bonding with founder when nobody else believes in them, but you do, and you see them become successful. Like VC tend to say investing companies kind of like you have a bunch of kids, right? In a strange way, it's, it's kind of like that. You want them to be successful. And when they do, you're super just kind of proud of what they have achieved because you are always the one sitting on behind the scene on the backseat rather than front and center. So, so I would say that's the thing. I think early stage investing is super exciting, but uh, Without question, like financial return is always number one. Like you can have fun, you can kind of enjoy all the interaction you want, but at the end of the day, if you cannot generate return, then it doesn't really matter. You know how much you love the job, you have to deliver return. There's one thing that one of my uh, mentors he used to say, you know, when he like on the fundraising trail with the LPs, he said that I would rather lose the LP than to lose the LPs money. That's summarized everything. And frankly, that's the business that we're in. So Yeah, that, I think that you answered that very beautifully. Yep. Uh, and then the next question we have, it's more about China because you do have experience uh, in investing into China. It talks about do government and private forces in China prevent the big through of new young unicorns in China? Personally, I don't think so. If you look at the statistic, China is already ranked second in terms of the number of unicorns in the world. I think they, I think they, they have about 37% as a total global unicorn. So I don't think that any of these forces have ever prevented a unicorn from coming out from China. But I guess the question is about breakthrough. So what's your view on that? Uh, breakthrough in, in terms of what? In terms of like uh, any government or private forces, do you think mm. any of those shape uh, China's unicorn or prevented mm. any unicorn from any company from becoming a unicorn? 
Yeah, I mean, I echo your point. So the historic data shows that that hasn't happened. And just I don't think there is a reason to believe that that will be a force to prevent more unicorn from being created in the future. And if anything, I actually think with all antitrust movement that's going on in both countries, in US, US and China, I actually think long term that's a good thing for startups to grab a foothold so that they can be a unicorn company. Antitrust is actually a good thing in terms of a long term for providing breathing room for a more younger startup um, to thrive. So yeah. uh, if anything, I actually more bullish about more unicorn being created in both countries. Yeah. The next question is also kind of focused on China. It says, mm. to what point does the huge internal consumption in China negate the need of a SaaS platform to expand go- globally? Is being China-centric a, a viable strategic decision if you are still looking for international VC? Personally, though, based on my own experience, if you can, if any startup can uh, address the China market, you'd be big enough to be a, more than a unicorn. So there isn't a need for a startup to really go into China or go global or go to the US. I think the point is about being focused on one particular market. And, mm-hmm. and what have you been seeing? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think China has, well, either China or any other ecosystem, you, you play with your strengths. You can't play by other people's role. So what China was good at was in, was in hardware, was in manufacturing, and was in exporting, right? So those parts, it makes sense to build a company like DJI and the, you, where you have your majority of your customer base is in the Western world, in the U.S., However, if you kind of think about SaaS or enterprise, I agree with you. I think China being soon to be the largest market in the world has that internal market size and market demand to create not just unicorn company. A unicorn company is only 1 billion valuation. I mean, I think I'm thinking about like 10 billion, even 1 trillion companies. So what the question that we, we want to do, I mean, we talk about like being ambitious and being backing the ambitious uh, it's really like, how can we, being an uh, uh, early-stage investor, to back the next iconic companies? Think about the Microsoft of China, right? The Intel of China and the Salesforce of China. And that's our AI first and AI-driven. And that's what gets us excited. And China, when we go through the fundamental analysis, China does have that fundamental in terms of market size and, and customer base to support that. Not next year. But being early stage investor is, uh, is about long term. So we're looking at five, five to 10 years and even longer. Yeah, we are actually uh, right on time at the end of our session, but I'm going to ask two more questions and then uh, we'll, we'll have to close the session for our next for next time. One of the, one question is quite interesting because I think that's what a lot of startups tend to be struggling with. The question is, many SaaS founders have a hard time choosing the target segment in the early stage. Should I target mm-hmm. the large enterprise or the SME? Meaning, should I be the hybrid or Shopify of this field? So from your experience, Jay, what questions should they ask to decide the fo- to focus? And, mm-hmm. and is it realistic to build solutions covering both segments as a startup? Or should they be more focused? I think, yeah, I think a... every startup, every startup yeah. goes through that struggle. It's a very good question, a really practical one as well. The short answer, obviously, it depends on the product that you're offering. But one thing that I that we've seen is fairly universal in B2B companies is that at the end of the day, you want to 
secure the large account. You want to secure the large logo and contract. But from where you are here to there, how do you get there? That's typically the struggle. So in the example of Workboard, they tip, initially they try the Slack approach, which is the bottom-up approach, right? You kind of talk to the employee, the team member, the man, the mid-layer manager, and then once you have the momentum, you kind of go to the top level and do the enterprise sell. So that that way, the good the, the advantage is that you kind of shorten the sell cycle, hopefully a little bit, and you kind of build more data point and credibility as you go before you approach to the the CTO and CIO level uh, of decision maker, and that that works. But just in workforce case, they kind of did detour a little bit. It ended up CIO, CXO, they tend to love it because it gives them much better visibility of what's going on with the company at the, at the at the holistic view. So actually, top-down approach works a lot better than the bottom-up. So they ended up with 80% focus on the, the top-down sale and the 20 kind of bottom-up versus before is 80-20. So I think always kind of experiment what works and what, what does not. Typically, it's not a one-way, like either or answer. Typically, you have a hybrid approach. I think the, the question is really like what percentage that you want to dedicate uh, uh, your resource in the go-to-market strategy. So that's the part that, that as a CEO, you probably want to think a lot more about. A lot more about. And again, at early stage, at seed and series A, oftentimes you are not only the CEO, you're also the VP of sales as well, right? So you will spend a lot of time in front of the customers. So ideally, if you pay attention, you should be able to derive really good customers' insight and marketing insight from there. And that gives you the first-hand information to guide you what type of approach will be the best and most suitable. And looking back to uh, the conversation that we had earlier, is that if you have a, v, a VC partner that you can trust, that you can just run idea with and act who act as a sounding board, that tend to be super helpful when you kind of go through this type of uh, mental exercise. Yeah. And I think the final question, it's also something that it's, 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 I found it insightful to actually learn about it. It's, this question is, have you heard startups um, went from the U.S. to China or other Asian countries and became very successful later on? And he's, he or she is hoping to find out what are some common characteristics of a U.S. startups they uh, need to have before considering expanding into Asian market. And I think to some extent, it's whichever country that you're expanding beyond your local base, they're bound to be something that you should already have a foundation. So I guess the question is really about what foundation should you have before you decide to explore a new market beyond your own country? That's a, this is a good question. So US and China is a little bit tricky in that both are big, both are huge market in by themselves. So if you are a US-based company, you're pretty much satisfied or happy with the customer space in the US, and you're likely to be a public company if you execute well already. So that's why many US companies, certainly on the enterprise side, don't think about going outside the US for a long time. Maybe you become a public company, then maybe you start thinking about China strategy or whatnot. Same with China. China, I think so far, not so much on the enterprise side yet. Most consumer companies, the, because the consumer uh, B2C market is so robust and so big in China, but the huge uh, unicorn company that's in China, they are kind of happy. Um, if they are deciding to go out of China, probably think about Southeast Asia, think about India as well. 
there is one exception. I mean, for example, with High Review, which they do the video inter interviewing platform, they did think about China fairly early stage, Series B and Series C. And, and, and that's only because I was serving on the board. And I was like, what about China? Think about China, right? So if you want to scale your revenue, uh, you have a U.S. sales force already, and I have connection and I have insight to China. Let's at least talk about it. So another interesting thing is that uh, a lot of times company, they don't run a systematic process that much. It's really about who is involved. So if you have more cross-border investors happen to be on board, then that conversation probably come up sooner than later. So disappointingly, it's more ad hoc than a very systematic uh, way to think about it for company side. So... Jay, I want to say thank you very much for sharing all this very insightful information. What, there are some questions in the, in the participants uh, uh, asking how to connect with you. What was your preferred way of connecting with the, with the, the audiences? Is it through your website or is it through LinkedIn? Yeah, so, so first of all, I really enjoyed the chat. So thank you so much for inviting me. And definitely look forward to connecting uh, with the rest of the community members as well. Uh, one way that uh, we can do is definitely go to uh, my website and my Substack newsletter. I typically publish our thoughts at Leonis Capital from that newsletter. If you sign up, you will get the content delivered to the mailbox directly, mostly on a biweekly basis. We try to be you know, consistent that way. If folks use WeChat, I'm happy to share my WeChat as well. So this is my JZL WeChat. It's very simple, uh, nothing innovative there, but that's my handle on WeChat. So that those are probably the best way to, to reach me if people want to have a quick chat. Uh, obviously, there's a LinkedIn, just search my name with Leonis Capital. Yeah. And I want to end the session with a light note on something fun, I guess, <laughs> but uh -huh. also can create deep thoughts. Uh, you, Jay, you had analyzed uh, an article by the New York Times, and it talks about learning resilience from a 1,000-year-old mochi shop. So this mochi shop is in Kyoto in Japan. If we can travel again, I would definitely want to visit the, the shop. So they have gone through ups and downs through, <laughs> through the past 1,000 years. And for people who are interested, uh, you can visit Jay's website and read up on that article. I think it's very interesting. And if we can travel, we can definitely try the mochi. So on that, yeah. thank again, Jay, for coming to this call. And, and I do apologize if we are not able to go through all the questions that you have. Please feel free to reach out to Jay directly. And thank you for all your participation. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, guys.